Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Andy Ratcliffe was one of the original founders of Benchmark Capital, one of the most respected venture capital firms to this day, and certainly one of the biggest venture players during the dot-com era. On today's episode, Andy gives us more background on eBay, which was one of Benchmark's more famous successful investments, and also talks a bit about what venture investing was like during the dot-com era in general. But Andy is also that very rarest of breeds, someone who became an entrepreneur after an illustrious career as a venture capitalist. So at the end of this episode, Andy tells us a lot about Wealthfront, which is one of the most interesting players in the modern personal investment space. Please enjoy. Andy Ratcliffe, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. My pleasure. So, Andy, I believe that you got involved in venture capital while you were still in college, which kind of blows my mind, so I need to hear that story. But before, before we get into that, so what did you study in undergrad and grad? I studied finance and computer science as an undergrad, and then uh, a couple years after I graduated from college, I went to business school and I got into the venture capital business while I was going to grad school, not undergrad. Okay, so uh, grad school's at Stanford, undergrad was at Penn. Um, so how does that happen? If you're in school, how does one get involved in venture capital if by definition you might not have experience? Well, you don't. Right. So uh, a lot of my career I can attribute to luck, and this was certainly uh, – I. I got into the venture capital business by luck. So the funny thing was that when I was a, after my junior year in college, so this is 1979, I read an article in the New York Times Sunday business section about venture capital, and I'd never heard about it. But after I read the article, I thought, wow, that would be the most amazing career because it combined the three things that I enjoyed the most, uh, computers, uh, entrepreneurship. My dad had a very small business and investing, which was something that I had really gotten involved with because of my finance background. And I ended up, uh, when I graduated, I, I wanted to live in Manhattan. Uh, that was a, a goal of mine. And unfortunately, the only software development jobs were in things called time-sharing bureaus, which mm -hmm. served the large financial services companies. And they treated programmers, as they then called them, like crap. And so I didn't want to do that after I met a bunch of those companies. So I ended up going to work in Wall Street and worked in mergers and acquisitions with tech companies. And I was really lucky because I was the only person in the department who understood what the companies did. So that gave me a lot more exposure than I deserved. And the head of the department was a Stanford grad. And he said, you know, you ought to think about going to Stanford if you want to get into the venture capital business, because that'll get you closer to the community. And that worked out really, really well. So what is the, what's the first firm that you work for and in what capacity? I, the first firm I worked for was while I was going to school. So I worked about 30 hours a week 
while I was getting my MBA for a firm called Lamoureux Glynn & Associates. This was in the third starting the third quarter of my first year. Business school was two years. And so I worked uh, about 30 hours a week for the third quarter. Uh, they, Stanford works on quarters versus trimester versus semesters, and then all summer long, and then all my second year at that rate. And so Lamoureux Glynn was the first what is no, now known as a crossover firm, meaning they invested in late stage. Uh, private technology companies and early stage public technology companies, and they leveraged their knowledge from both sides to do a better job on both sides. And they, I was able to get in there because of my investment experience, and I learned a ton about technology investing, which is an area that, that I had focused my individual time on, and I uh, was able to use that to parlay it into relationships in the venture business, and ultimately, upon graduation, I, st- I went to work for a earlier stage firm called Harvest Ventures, and then after a year and a half, I moved to Merrill Pickard Anderson and Iyer, which was at the time one of the premier firms. Worked there about ten years, and then co-founded Benchmark back in 1995. Uh, before we get to Benchmark, so uh, you started. This is the early 80s that you start this. Well, I, I started in the venture business in March of 83. Okay, so this is smack dab in the middle of the of the PC boom. Correct. Uh, is that what you were um, uh, focused on? Like, what was your area of expertise like throughout the 80s, let's say? You know, it's funny. If you look at really successful venture capitalists, they're first and foremost generalists. There's a perception that they're specialists, but the people who are specialists tend to plow their same uh, farm, a little, their fields, a little bit too long. So you have to be facile enough to move to the next hot market. So I, over the years, I've invested in a number of different technologies. Well, I, I actually, I'm bringing up the, the PC boom for historical context for the audience. They'll be familiar with um, Mark Andreessen's famous quote that when he got to Silicon Valley in 93, he felt like it was dead because the PC boom was over and he had missed it. So I'm curious, just obviously we'll get into your experiences during the, the, the dot-com era, but um, did did Silicon Valley in general or VC particularly, did was there a, a boom and bust cycle that came about because of, of the, the, the PC uh, business cycle, as it were? You know, I don't think of it as a boom or bust. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's the the boom in the 80s was driven, I would argue, by the microprocessor, not by the PC. So the microprocessor enabled a number of businesses, most specifically the personal computer, but it uh, it caused a boom in in storage, in networking, in all the ancillary services that you needed to use a personal computer and design automation, to design the semiconductors that uh, acted as the core for the PCs. So there was a virtuous cycle. As a matter of fact, Bill Perry, who was a a very well-known former Secretary of Defense, said that, uh, I, I once heard him say that Silicon Valley was based on a virtuous cycle between uh, the semiconductor industry and the computer industry. Specifically, uh, you needed powerful computers to design more powerful semiconductors. More powerful semiconductors 
fueled more powerful computers, which fueled more powerful semiconductors, mm-hmm. and you just kept having uh, more, uh, you know, a, a virtuous cycle. And for the longest time, throughout the 1980s, Silicon Valley-based companies primarily sold to Silicon Valley companies. They sold products to engineers. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't until the internet boom starting in 95 that that Silicon Valley companies started selling to traditional enterprises. So there was a boom in the in the 80s and early 90s. It, it went from PCs to uh, to client server mm-hmm. and then to the internet. So I didn't see any busts during that period. Hmm. I, I don't, I'm not sure where, where that perspective comes from. Okay. Interesting. So what if, to the best of your recollection, um, so we're, we're, we're coming into benchmark here, which gets started in 95. Uh, do you remember, was there a, uh, do you remember a sense that the web was coming and it was going to be a big thing or did it just sort of take everyone by surprise when, when it hit the scene? I think it took everyone by surprise. I remember in 1993, three or four, uh, a a technologist who I really, really respected showed me Mosaic, which was the first web browser that Mark Andreessen worked on when he was at the University of Illinois. And, you know, it it crashed all the time, but the idea of hyperlinking from site to site was really quite spectacular. I had no idea how you could build a business out of this, but it was an amazing thing to behold. I don't think any of us realized the way that it might explode until we saw Netscape take off. So what was what was the impetus behind the creation of Benchmark? Uh, by, by what you've just said, I'm, I'm going to hazard that it wasn't, oh, the, the internet is, is exploding, let's start a firm to, to, to no, take advantage of that. Okay, so tell me what the impetus was. Well, what you'll find, one of the funny things about the venture capital business is that about 20 firms, which represents 2 or 3% of the total number of venture capital firms in the United States, mm-hmm. generate 95% of the industry's returns. It's the most Pareto optimal business I've ever seen. Uh, and the, the people who populate those firms almost all trace their founding, their lineage back to firms that were in the business in the late 1970s. So there really hasn't been much change. It's just like you're moving the deck chairs around, but Mm -hmm. not the names on the doors change, but the people don't really change. Mm -hmm. So uh, we started as a result of generational transition. And by that, I mean... Uh, two firms, two of the top five firms in the business, uh, my firm, Merrill Pickard Anderson and Iyer, and one of my co-founding partner, uh, Bob Cagle's firm, TVI, were both going through a transition where our founding partner wanted to retire. Mm-hmm. And in the Merrill, K- Merrill Pickard case, two of the partners actually were at a point that they wanted to retire, which left three of us. And we could have taken the franchise forward. As a matter of fact, our last fund that we had raised in 1989 was a 9x fund. It returned 9x the capital invested, which is off the charts mm-hmm. yeah. for a venture capital fund. And this was be- way before the Internet. Right. So we had, uh, we had a great track record. We had uh, great 
personal relationships, and we could have continued to take the Merrill Pickard franchise forward. But two of the five of us, two of the three of us, really wanted to start with a clean sheet of paper because we were really oriented toward trying to build something that could be the best. And we thought that the culture that we had at that firm was pretty well set and we weren't going to be able to completely redo it, that we needed to start with a clean sheet of paper if we hoped to to build the best. Bob Cagle, who was at TVI, uh, who's, uh, which was also going through this generational transition where their founding partner uh, was retiring, felt the exact same way. Bob and my partner, Bruce Dunleavy, were very close friends. And, and what united us and two other guys, Kevin Harvey and Val Vaden, was this desire to build a firm that we thought had a chance to be perceived as number one in the business. So it was created by the virtue of this generational transition. And it's about you guys wanting to, to hang your own shingle and, and, and do it your way. Well, it wasn't so much hanging our own shingle as it was we thought we needed to do things differently if we wanted to take on the firm that we perceived as far and away the best firm in the business at the time, which was Kleiner, Perkins, mm-hmm. Caulfield, and Byers. Mm-hmm. So I, I and, and it, we just got lucky that it happened. We happened to have formed the firm just at the beginning right. of the internet. So it's better <laughs> to be lucky than it is to be good. Well, that's generally true for everything in life, but especially true for VC, I suppose. But yes. Um, so you during your time. Um, at Benchmark uh, became known for, for your deals involving networking companies because uh, this show has generally dealt with, you know, consumer facing um, uh, companies and technologies. I wonder before we get into um, your, your networking investments, um, the two, obviously Benchmark is most known most famous for the eBay investment during the dot-com era. Um, Do you, is there any memory that you have of that that investment coming to the table, what the the partners thought about it, kicking it around, because you know until it went public, like everyone thought that eBay was a nutty idea. Who would sell things to strangers on the internet? But so, if you have any memories or stories about that deal coming to the table and and what people thought of it internally, I'd love to hear it. Sure. Well, uh, eBay was founded by a fellow named Piero Midiar. And prior to eBay, Pierre was employee number four at a company called, originally called Inc., I-N-K, which was a pen-based computer software company, right. which was uh, quite the rage uh, for a little while in the early 90s, which then pivoted to become eShop, which was one of the first e-commerce companies. Mm-hmm. But it was an e-commerce company built on top of CompuServe and AOL, so in advance of the Internet. And my partner, Bruce Dunleavy, was an investor in Inc., and probably the most influential of the investors at Inc., even though he wasn't on the board. So uh, anyone who ever had the good fortune of having Bruce involved in their company made sure to keep their relationship going because he's such a sage advisor. Well, Pierre, as you know, uh, created eBay as a hobby. He Mm -hmm. was trying to create an electronic community. That's how it got its name of eBay. It was Electronic Bay Area. And to build this community, he created six different applications, one of which was an auction site that he called Auction Web. Uh, 
And the homepage actually for eBay was a page of 250 words in courier font with six links, of which one was auction web, which was about two-thirds of the way down the page. Mm-hmm. So he did this, you know, the famous stories he wanted to create a way for his girlfriend, who was a Pez collector, to, to be able to buy and sell these uh, Pez devices. And it took off. And he did it as a hobby in his apartment. And it had grown so quickly, he did it for free, that he needed to buy another server. And more importantly, he needed to buy more bandwidth. And he couldn't afford to do that based on his salary. I think he was working at General Magic at the time. So he reluctantly sent a note to his uh, users saying, I really am sorry, but I need to charge a listing fee in order to afford the extra bandwidth I need to continue the service. Well, from that point on, the revenues came in faster than the expenses. And so it just grew at about 10% a month every month and was profitable from day one. Right. Rare thing. Very, very rare thing. So uh, Pierre, I think, got an offer to be acquired by a newspaper company because they saw this as an interesting complement to their classified section, which is one of the most profitable areas of advertising for a newspaper. And so he called up Bruce and asked him out for breakfast because he wanted Bruce's opinion on whether or not he should sell. So Bruce listened diligently throughout the breakfast and said at the end of of hearing the story, he said, Pierre, I don't understand why you would want to sell. You're growing at 10% a month. You had revenues of about $200,000 a month, and he was profitable. So Bruce said, why not let us invest? We'll let you take some money off the table, and we'll help you find a CEO because Pierre didn't really want to run it. Mm -hmm. And why don't we go for it? And Pierre said, that sounds great. And they raised $6 million, three went to Pierre and, uh, and uh, his uh, primary collaborator, and uh, $3 million went into the company, and they never used the $3 million that went into the company. Because they were always profitable. Because <laughs> they were always profitable. And we looked at it and said, oh, my God, this is – well – Others said this is just about Beanie Babies. We saw it as a platform where you could sell a lot of other products because we saw other products being sold, but the company intelligently doubled down on collectibles because they wanted an unassailable position. So eBay was one of the few investments I can ever remember us making where every one of the partners of Benchmark said, I'll go on the board if you don't want to go on the board. (laughs) And one of our partners had focused on the intersection of consumer and technology, which was not really a thing yet. His name is Bob Cagle. And so Bruce said to Bob, why don't you do this? This is your area of passion. And that's the thing about Benchmark. It's an equal partnership. So none of us feel proprietary about doing the deals that we find. We want to put the best guy on the deal. And when Bob moved a little slowly, all the other partners said to him, well, if you don't want to do this, I'll do it because we just saw the power of it. Yet none of our colleagues in the industry seem to have gotten it. Now, well, the way you make money, so just to give you some context, mm-hmm. my investment idol, Howard Marks, who runs a firm called Oak Tree, which is a distressed debt firm, but he's right, right. well known for his quarterly letter to his investors, right. he is, his investing, his returns, likes to say that investing can be described with a two-by-two two matrix. 
On the one hand, you can be right or wrong. On the other hand, you can be consensus or non-consensus. Obviously, if you're wrong, you don't make money. But what people don't realize is if you're right in consensus, you don't make money. The only way you make outsized returns is by being right in non-consensus. We're very focused on this at Benchmark. And so eBay really fit this bill. It was a very non-consensus play, and we didn't think it was that big of a leap of faith that they could transition from collectibles into other items. We had no idea it would turn into a company as big as it did. So as I said previous, um, your your, uh, most well-known deals were things like Jupiter, Equinix, Opsware, uh, I'm sorry, Juniper. <laughs> sorry about yeah. that. Um, just tell me what you were looking for in the 90s, early 2000s in this sort of networking space. Like, was there, you, you said earlier that you, you don't maybe believe in this idea of an investment thesis, but what were you looking at in the networking space? So, show me a venture capitalist with an investment thesis, and I'll show you an unsuccessful venture capitalist. <laughs> because if you have a thesis, it's too late. Mm. Remember the point about you want to be right and non-consensus? Right. You want to be contrarian. You you want to be contrarian. Well, you're not going to have a contrarian thesis because the key to being contrarian is recognizing an inflection point or a change because without change, there's seldom opportunity. The entrepreneurs are the ones who recognize that change a year before we as investors do. So there's no such thing as a visionary venture capitalist. That's complete bullshit. What we do is to hopefully recognize an entrepreneur who has noticed noticed an inflection point that allows them to build a new kind of product to address a new kind of market. So what what we purposely didn't do was have a thesis. What we tried to do was keep an open mind so that when an entrepreneur came in and spun a story about something new happening, we were open-minded to that, whereas others who might have a thesis would not be because it didn't fit their thesis. That's not how you make money in the venture capital business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It just so happened that with the explosion of the internet came a need for radically more bandwidth, which required entirely new plumbing, which created an opportunity for a bunch of new types of networking equipment. Now, earlier in my career, I'd invested in software, I'd invested in semiconductors, I'd invested in electronic design automation. So I view myself as a generalist. Now I run a consumer internet company. So I never thought of myself as a networking guy. I just happened to have more interest in that than perhaps some of my uh, partners did. And remember, back in the 80s, I invested in America Online, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, <laughs> which is pretty far from a networking company. But also a, a decent investment in the end. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, so, again, though, it, it, it was just this this realization that it's almost, it, it's, it's, it's a dead simple thing to do. Like, it's this infrastructure has to explode, so let's let's fund the best of breed that's going to that's gonna create the infrastructure for this revolution. That's, that's the simple way of, of saying it. It's a lot harder to actually execute mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. than it is, than you might think. More nuance to it than, than the way I put it, yes. Um, so one of those uh, investments I mentioned was Opsware. Um, so is that when you first started working closely with, with Mark Andreessen? 
Yeah, well, Opsware was not a networking company. Right, that Opsware. was the early, early cloud computing and, and software yes. as a system. Yeah, it was sort service, of yeah. AWS way before AWS. Right, right, right. So, right, I, I, I didn't mean to uh, uh, collide those two, but uh, was that where you first started working closely with him? It is, yes. And uh, I've spoken to, I don't know seven or eight former Netscape people at this point. And, and some of them have said quite explicitly, like I came away from Netscape, you know, with a chip on my shoulder, not so much against, you know, Microsoft, but that we got sold to maybe AOL or whatever. But um, so that was, that was sort of um, Andreessen's, um, you know, real first startup on his own. Was, was there a sense that he was going for like a second act or, or redemption with Opsware? What do you remember about, um, when that started, what, what Mark was, was trying to do? Well, Mark didn't need to be redeemed. He built a company that created the commercial exactly. internet. Exactly. And well, what, generated billions of value, so I don't think he needed to be redeemed. So you don't, it, you don't have a recollection that, you know, uh, Netscape couldn't have been what, what I thought it would be, and now I'm going to do it the right way? You don't remember that at all? Well, I think they were disappointed at the ultimate outcome of Netscape, but right. that's not why they started Opsware. They started Opsware because they recognized a really interesting opportunity while at AOL. Ben Horowitz ran the server business for Netscape, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he noticed that a number of companies back then, one of the keys to building an internet company was to get a deal with AOL, right, where right. you would become the exclusive owner of a particular space like travel or flower, you know, selling flowers or sports or you name it. And companies that would, you'd have to pay America online a, a huge amount of money, like 30 to a hundred million dollars in order to get this exclusive position in their portal. Right. You'd, you'd raise around and give it all to AOL. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and you were happy to do that. Well, Ben noticed that when companies struck these deals with AOL and then connected their service to AOL, they were uh, hit like drinking from a fire hose because all of a sudden they had to deal with a tremendous amount of traffic that they usually were not prepared to deal with. And he thought there was an amazing opportunity to help companies solve that problem. And that's how they started a company called LoudCloud, which was uh, like in AWS, it was a utility, a service that startups could go to, to basically they could outsource their entire operation to LoudCloud and LoudCloud would make sure that their operations scaled to the necessary level, even if they were to connect to AOL. And uh, unfortunately, the bubble burst in 2000. And whereas startups were paying a million dollars a month to use the loud cloud service. When the bubble burst, uh, there were no longer startups who were willing to pay that kind of money, so they had to sell to enterprises. Enterprises didn't want to buy a service, they wanted to license the software, and that's how the company pivoted to become Opsware, to sell software to major enterprises so that they could build scalable internet presences. So um, I think you you retire from like day to day uh, at Benchmark in around what two thousand four, uh, January of 05. Of oh five. Okay, and 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 you um, you start teaching and, and lecturing at, at Stanford, and I, I don't want to ask the question like why because you know teaching is a wonderful and noble profession, but um, 
because what we'll get into with what you're doing today, like, did you think you were done? Like, were you feeling like that was retirement? Well, yeah, you have to understand the unique structure of Benchmark to understand why I would do that. Mm-hmm. So Benchmark is unique in that it is an always equal partnership. We thought that was what was necessary in order to build the best firm in the business, that if we could offer an equal partnership, even to people who joined 20 years later, we could attract much better talent because the best talent would want to join as equals as opposed to junior people in a hierarchy, which is what is typical for a venture partnership. But we knew that the only way there was enough pie to go around in an equal partnership is the old guys had to get out of the way. And what typically brings down venture firms is the founding partners no longer want to work their butts off, but they still want to collect their part of the economics. And we had experienced that as young people. It's the young people who generate the returns, but the equity is owned by by the old people. Mm -hmm. And we didn't want to make the mistake of our predecessors. So we said, okay, if we want to build a legacy, then we need to uh, all agree that when we get to the point that we're no longer willing to work 110% on benchmark, you have to raise your hand and opt out and you get no economics in future partnerships, Mm. which is radical. Mm -hmm. And so I was the second partner to retire, and now all five of the founding partners have retired. But all of us reached a point where we might have been willing to work part-time, but you don't build the best firm in the business by having a bunch of part-time partners. You need people who are willing to kill themselves to go do it. So I wasn't willing to go 110% anymore, And I reached the point where I wanted to give back because I was incredibly fortunate in my career to have done as well as I did. So I decided to teach at my grad school alma mater. I went on the board of trustees of my undergrad alma mater, and my wife and I funded an innovative cancer research funding initiative. And so I had dedicated my life to doing social good, and amazingly, Wealthfront was yet another example of an attempt to do social good. That's what caused me to start the company. Well, okay, because I've heard you say, and this is a great uh, sort of line, um, that that the great ideas sort of find you. And so the idea for Wealthfront, you didn't seek it out. It it sort of came to you. So if you want to just tell the story of how Wealthfront uh, as an idea comes to the surface. Sure. Well, one of my responsibilities as a trustee at Penn is to sit on the university's endowment investment committee. I think we have the seventh or eighth largest endowment in the United States, and the premier university endowments are the best managed pools of capital in the world. Well, one day I was sitting in a meeting, and the investment team was talking about how they generate their outstanding returns. And it struck me that what they were doing was, uh, in terms of the tools they used were pretty arcane, that software could do a much better job of many of the tasks that they performed. And that if much of what they were, what they performed were automated through software, you could actually democratize access to it. Because we're talking, we're talking about things like asset allocation, which, which can be done by software and, 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 it can be personalized and, and, and specialized for your individual need case by software. Absolutely. And so this was uh, personal to me because over the 
my previous 25 years as a venture capitalist, I had recruited a lot of people into portfolio companies that went on to financial success, such that uh, you know many of those people would then come to me for investment advice because they had made one to five million dollars. They wanted to know how they could or should invest it, and I could never tell them to do what I do because I was in the fortunate position to be able to afford access to the best investment products and services. And even though they'd made one to $5 million, they couldn't come close to affording the best. And that always struck me as wrong, that you needed money to make money. And so sitting in this meeting, it just hit me that I knew about some changes in brokerage infrastructure that were going on that would allow you to deliver an 80-20 on what the endowments do in software, thereby addressing the needs of all of these people that I had recruited over the years. And I thought, God, if I did that, I could democratize access to sophisticated financial advice, thereby doing a social good. So it really fit with my whole program at the time. So there's there's two big ideas here. There's, first of all, allowing um, everyday investors to have access to the sophisticated um, in, investment strategies that high net worth people up until this point have only had access to. Correct. And then the second part is, you know, what we call fintech or, or, or allowing software to manage money in a more efficient way. Well, you can't do the first without the second. Right. So you can't democratize that access other than through software. You just, it's not possible to scale to the level necessary and to get to the cost necessary mm -hmm. unless you do it in software. As Mark Andreessen likes to say, software is eating the world. Right, this is right. a perfect example. So, um, but then we, we still haven't addressed uh, why do you want to be the entrepreneur at this point in your career? I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I had no desire. And, and had I known how hard it was going to be, I never would have done it. So I had this really naive view that this is something that needed to be done. So why not start it as a hobby? And if it gets traction, then I'll just hire a CEO. That can't be all that hard. Mm -hmm. And it took about three years before we actually found product market fit where people really, really wanted the product. And at that point, uh, I ran it for one more year and then I brought in a CEO to replace myself. And that, at that time, I thought that's what I really wanted to do was have somebody else run it. And about seven months ago, I changed my mind and, and I decided I wanted to come back to run it again. You're either a glutton for punishment or you really – this is really sticking in well, your Well, I'm craw. not very bright. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, uh, from my understanding, you've made a conscious decision or, or the company has made a conscious decision to – First of all, not go for scale immediately to to serve um, a, a specific audience as well as you can, and then grow with that audience. And, and I'm I mean that specifically because I it, it it feels like you guys are targeting young people because you want to grow with them over their lifetime. Correct. And, There's an analogy actually to what Charles Schwab did. Actually, Chuck pointed this out to me about four years ago, and that is that most people don't realize it. But when Schwab started in 1975, the idea of a discount brokerage seemed wacky. And so the only people who were willing to try it back then were young people, 
because older people were used to having a personal relationship with their broker. In the case of Schwab, you dealt with a, uh, someone at the end of an 800 number who was nameless and faceless. And that was really considered wacky. So the average age of a Schwab client back then was 32, which is exactly the same age as our average client. And their average net worth and income inflation adjusted were the same as ours. And over the course of the next 42 years, the average Schwab client is aged 26 years to 58. Mm -hmm. So that tells me that they basically just grew with the baby boomers. And we want to do the same thing for millennials. We want to build the best possible product for them to the exclusion of trying to serve baby boomers who might have more money. And as they grow their wealth because they're in the wealth accumulation phase of their lives, uh, we hope to grow with them when, because no one else is exclusively targeting them. So no one else is building the kind of software-based services that they want. Well, and that's also – it sort of fits hand in glove because um, – <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to speak for millennials because I'm not one, but millennials don't want to speak on the phone with somebody. They want to, ma to, to manage things through their cell phone, and, and that's sort of what you guys are consciously targeting as well. Our clients tell us, we pay you not to talk to us. <laughs> and we consider that a feature, not a bug. So, whereas the, the traditional industry says, oh, they'll come to their senses when they get older. Well, just like I don't think you switch to symphony music when you turn 50, you're not going to suddenly want to talk to someone when you turn 50 if you're in the millennial generation because you're conditioned to prefer to interact through software versus uh, personal interaction. So uh, just real briefly, pitch to me, as if I am a millennial, <laughs> um, the advantages um, that Wealthfront offers. So I, I, it's very low cost, first of all, and then it also allows me to get this diversification and this asset allocation that will allow me to grow through my career in, into um, hopefully retirement. Well, at the highest level, what we're doing is taking all of the financial services traditionally made available through private wealth managers. Mm -hmm. Those are the financial advisors that serve the very wealthy. They have minimums of 5 to $15 million at places like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. So we're taking all the things that they do and implementing them in software so that they can be delivered at minimums well uh, below a million dollars. Our minimum is only $500. So uh, we're not talking only about investment management services, but financial planning. So we think we can actually do a better job of financial planning and software because we don't need to interview you to get, you the, in to get the inputs we need to plug into a commercial software package. Rather, via application programming interface, if we get your permission, we can connect to all your financial accounts, uh, exactly estimate what you spend and save based on your past behavior as opposed to rely on your guesses, give you an immediate answer. A traditional planner might take two to four weeks to give you that answer. And we give you these beautiful interactive tools to play with it even on your smartphone while you're standing in line for coffee. So we do a great job of financial planning. And then in addition, uh, we are getting into banking services that you might get if you're a very wealthy person. So a few weeks ago, we introduced our portfolio line of credit. If you have $100,000 invested with us, you can borrow up to 
of that amount, uh, get the money the next day with no po- uh, paperwork. You're automatically enrolled in a line of credit. You're, 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 borrow- you're borrowing against your, your portfolio. Exactly. Okay. And as a result, your interest rates are really, really low, three and a quarter to four and a half percent, which is well below even a home equity line of credit. But so that would be cash for someone to, say, put a down payment on a house or something. Or to do a remodel or to pay for a wedding mm-hmm. or maybe uh, to pay down their student debt at a lower interest rate. There are a number of, of ways to do that. I mean, there's no minimum uh, monthly payment and the interest accrues so you can pay it back on your own schedule. So let me uh, let me wrap up here with, with two questions. Um, sort of re- for, The first one is definitely related to, to Wealthfront, but... Um, you know, people talk all the time, especially uh, actually your friend uh, Mark Andreessen, about how the Internet revolution up until this point hasn't really transformed the major sectors of our economy, like healthcare and, and obviously finance. Um, and so, you know, fintech is one of those things that we hear about. It's, it's the next big thing like VR is going to be or artificial intelligence. Is this the moment in things like this where the the technologies that the internet have have mainstreamed are, are they finally going to transform things like how we finance our, our lives well the best uh, yeah i think the answer is yes and the reason i think that is the rate at which we're being adopted mary meeker who used to be a famous uh, internet analyst who's now a partner at Kleiner Perkins Caulfield I, and I was going to say she's still famous <laughs> Okay. Yes. Well, she was famous for a, uh, among other things, her internet a, reports. A, her internet reports. Yes. And I remember 20 years ago when she started this internet report, she published a graph that was really interesting. And basically, it showed that every new technology that gets adopted gets adopted at a faster rate than previous technologies. So, for example, the radio got adopted at a faster rate than the telephone, TVs faster than radios, uh, cell phones faster than, than TVs, the internet faster yet, smartphones faster yet. And if you drill down even within a category, there are subcategories where the same thing happens. So if you think about investment management or investment services, Schwab got adopted at a much faster rate than Merrill Lynch did and is now larger than Merrill Lynch. And in our first five years, we've been adopted at a rate that's twice the rate at which Schwab was adopted. And usually, if you're adopted at a faster rate, you grow into a bigger business than the previous technology. So that gives me great confidence that our approach is the next big thing. Um, and that also makes me think that, you know, all these recent products like, like ETFs are, you know, starting to outpace, uh, you know, traditional mutual funds and things like that. So like, it really is the bleeding edge of, of, of finance. So ETF, so, uh, index funds grew at a faster rate than mutual funds. ETFs were adopted at a faster rate than index funds. Interesting. So there's, there's a commonality to this, to this thing that, that, is what gives me such confidence that that our kind of approach to finance is going to work. And look, I think that the, the last three industries that have yet to be 
significantly impacted by the internet are finance, healthcare, and education as well. And all three of those are now starting to get impacted. Okay, final question calls back to to you being a, a, a veteran of, of VC. Um, what do you think of the age of unicorns in the sense that, like, would do you want Wealthfront to be called a unicorn, or is that would that be a title that, that you would <laughs> uh, turn your nose up at? Well, these days it's a term of derision. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, what I care a lot more about is that we ultimately build a large independent public company. I think Unicorn has come to be known as a company that's created a, a private company valuation of at least a billion dollars. Well, that's nice, but what matters in the end is how big of a business you build. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're focused on, is, is A, democratizing, is delivering on our mission to democratize access to sophisticated financial advice, and then B, by doing that, uh, building a very large and independent business. So do you think that um, you know some, some entrepreneurs chasing this unicorn title uh, are doing themselves in the, the long-term viability of their business is a disservice? They can. I don't think you can say in all cases yes or no. You know, one of the ways that you can get a higher valuation is by agreeing to some onerous financial terms associated with the security that is sold. So you can game the system. You know, a company you know, one company that's worth $400 million can be worth a billion dollars with different terms. So it's not apples to apples. But in the end, what you want to do is create the, the, the greatest uh, financing company or uh, financial management company for, for the, the next generation of Americans coming through. That's what we're trying to do, yes. Well, um, good luck to you. God bless. And, and Andy Ratcliffe, thank you, uh, first of all, for telling us about that, that great company, but also um, remembering your uh, fascinating career for us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out rate and review us on iTunes because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings and the more great reviews we get the more people will discover us as always there's more info on our website www.internethistorypodcast.com the show's twitter handle is at nethistorypod and my personal twitter is at brianmcc thanks for listening